We look around the markets these days, what do we see? We see extreme levels of inversion, especially in all the key curves. But what does that actually mean? It suggests, and it correctly suggests, the idea that markets are hedged for some pretty, pretty bad scenarios, both uh, future economic growth as well as financial market volatility. But what does that mean? Are markets hedging for a scenario or a set of scenarios that look like the 2008 crisis? Are we heading for an economic and financial crash? While markets and curves do appear to be hedged for some of the worst case scenarios, it's not at all clear that something like a crash would be among those. As weird as it may be, a crash might actually be a good thing if after this one, unlike the last one, we understand the fundamentals that created the conditions that led to the crash and then actually do something about them. Because if we don't do something about them, then we're stuck in the same situation that we were after 2008, which means what I think is the worst case scenario, nothing changes whatsoever. And so what we see in markets potentially isn't that they're pricing a massive crash into the world, into the world type of uh, outcome and potential. Maybe they're just pricing reversion to the mean, where in this case, the mean is very mean to most people. But the, re you know, the real problem here is that in that first crash, the 2008 crash, the explanation that was put forward, as well as the solutions that were offered to it, were never actually solutions to begin with. In fact, the only solutions they offered were to put people back to sleep, to stop asking questions about what was really going on. And so what happened after that was, instead of, again, fixing the problem, we were left to continue on with the same problems. That's why markets these days may look like markets did those days. And it all goes back to a much earlier problem in economics itself. And it's a problem that was identified inadvertently by none other than Mr. Ben Bernanke. Speaking in November of 2002, the shadow of the dot-com bust, the threats, it's some people, at least according to some people, that we were facing deflation. What would the Fed do in the face of deflation? Well, he, he, he told us in November 2002, he also told us a couple years later, inadvertently, why that may have never been the case in 2002, but could have been a case going forward. What am I talking about here? But first, I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University. As always, thank you very much for joining me. I do appreciate it. And if you're really interested in going further down the curve, financial, monetary rabbit holes, Got a whole bunch of stuff available for you at our website, eurodollar.university. Memberships available, uh, exclusive videos, Q&As, that type of thing. Uh, daily briefing, where we go over the most important macro details of the day, as well as what I think is the most moving parts of the markets in any given scenario, as well as our deep dive analysis, where we take a deep dive, a deep look, an extended look down all of these markets, money, macro, whatever, rabbit holes. Lots of stuff to go over, lots of stuff to get into, all of it available at eurodollar.university. So we're gonna start 
in November of 2002. As I said, in the shadow of the dot-com bust, which people not understanding the monetary mechanics of that age associated stock uh, a big decline in the stock prices with something like 1929, the Great Depression. Even though we went through the 1987 experience where the market crashed and then not much really happened afterward, why was that? Not a lot of people really thought too much about it. And so in the shadow of the dot-com bust, which was seemingly unending at that point, November 2002, policymakers, economists, certain people in the media began to talk about what would happen if there was deflation. And no, 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 Ben Bernanke said, uh-uh, that's not even a possibility. You see, as he said in his speech, first he asked, what has this got to do with monetary policy, this crashing in the stock market? Well, like gold, Bernanke said, U.S. dollars have value only to the extent they are strictly limited in supply. But the U.S. government has a technology called a printing press, or today it's electronic equivalent, that allows it to produce as many dollars as it wishes at essentially no cost. Now this raised a whole bunch of eyebrows at the time because in the shadow of the great inflation still, many people were more, how could a Fed chairman talk about the printing press? That is verboten, that is completely taboo. But Bernanke's point was, we'll never have a deflationary event because we have this printing press and by golly, we'll use it. In the very next st statement, Bernanke said, Bernanke told everybody how they would use it. Quote, by increasing the number of U.S. dollars in circulation, or even by credibly threatening to do so, the U.S. government can also reduce the value of, do of a dollar in terms of goods and services, which is equivalent to raising prices and dollars of those goods and services. This is exactly the argument people have been making in the era of QE. But in the era of QE, up until 2021, you never got the consumer prices, nor the deflating dollar either. The dollar had gone up in exchange value against all other currencies, despite what Bernanke said. Apparently, the Fed used the printing press, and everybody said they did, but the outcomes were not what he said. Because you missed the one qualifying statement in his speech at that point. What, is, what did he actually say? He said, by increasing the number of dollars in circulation, or by credibly threatening to do so. It all comes back to that one statement. Does the Fed actually create dollars or does it threaten to do so? Now, if it does only the latter, what Bernanke says is that it needs to be credible in order to work. But what if it's, it's not credible? Where does that credibility actually come from? Because, spoiler alert, the Fed doesn't actually create money. It creates bank reserves. The commercial banking system creates money. And what the Federal Reserve thinks and what economists believe is that the Fed doesn't need to create money because it can't. And so as long as it can credibly promise to do something irresponsible like printing money, it will, and it will act on people's behavior anyway. So Bernanke's answer to a deflationary problem was credibly promising, credibly threatening to use a printing press the Federal Reserve doesn't actually possess. But where does this credibility come from? Or where was it assumed to have come from? Well, it began in a, a backwards look on the Volcker, Volcker era. At the time when Volcker was trying to fight the great inflation, 
He had no idea what he was doing, nor did the mainstream really believe that he was absolutely skillfully ending the Great Inflation. He was just throwing stuff at the wall, hoping something stick, and eventually something did. And much later, years later, after this other thing happened, this transition from the Great Inflation, economists began to think, well, maybe Volcker did something. What that something is, even people today don't have a real answer for. Uh, many people think it has to do with bank reserves when it didn't. <laughs> this idea that bank reserves are at the center of the universe, which comes back to this issue about credibility. Where does the Fed's credibility come from? It started with Volcker, but then in the 80s and 1990s, we experienced this period of a so-called great moderation. Where did the great moderation actually come from? Well, the term itself, we know where that came from. That came from a, a paper in a conference in April of 2002. A couple of economists by the name of James Stock of Harvard and Mark Watson of Princeton examined what was going on in 2002. We had this almost two decade long period, or by then it was really two decades long, where economic volatility seemed to drop off. We, the U.S. and other economies around the world experienced this low, this low volatility state, which was really marked by its lack of major interruptions, recessions. The two recessions up to that point between the early 80s, the end of the Great Inflation, in 2002, we had the 1990-91 recession, the SNL recession, which wasn't really all that bad. And then the 2001.com recession, which was really mild, barely even a recession itself. So something had changed in the economy, which is why Stock and Watson titled their paper, which they published in January 2003, as Has the Business Cycle Changed and Why? And they offered a couple of explanations. They offered three major classes of explanation. The first was, I think, one that's very familiar to people my age in particular, is that the U.S. economy, developed, market, developed economies around the world, they transformed from industry-heavy into more services. A service-oriented economy is going to be less susceptible to extreme shifts in behavior because there's less inventory. The inventory cycle is less important to marginal economic output in a service-oriented industry, especially one that's predicated on, in, on uh, IT and things like that. Really high-level, high-value services at the margins reduce some of the volatility. But that wasn't necessarily a satisfying argument for Stock and Watson. Um, they saw some of that in some of their econometric numbers, the regressions they came up with. They said maybe that's a plausible explanation, but we don't think that accounts for the entirety of the situation. So they came up, the second part was, and this is the one that gets to what Bernanke would talk about exclusively, improved policy, improve, in, in particular, improved monetary policy. That's what Stock and Watson wrote in their paper. They said that maybe, just maybe, this idea of Alan Greenspan's Fed moving the Federal Reserve rate around a quarter point here or there, maybe sometimes 50 basis points, that had some kind of psychological effect that created less volatility in the economy because people could plan better, something like that. They weren't convinced about that explanation either. But you know who was? None other than Mr. Ben Bernanke. In February 2004, Mr. Bernanke in light of Stock and Watson coining the term Great Moderation and raising the possibility the Federal Reserve had something to do with it, 
He ran with that because in his speech, which he gave at the Eastern Economic Association in Washington, D.C., he gave it away. He titled his speech, The Great Moderation. <laughs> and he said, I have put my case for better monetary policy rather forcefully today because I think it likely that the explanation for the great moderation deserves more credit than it has received in the literature. Realize what he's saying there. Economists at the time were saying, well, it could be this moving an interest rate around a little bit here and there, but that kind of sounds ridiculous. And the evidence that we're finding, it's not really that satisfactory. It's, it's modestly compelling. It's a possibility, but it's not really coming out in all of the econometric numbers. Remember, these are economists who are predisposed to look favorably on everything the Federal Reserve does, and they're having trouble finding it. But Renke says, nope, uh-uh, we did this. Um, the Federal Reserve, because of its credible promises from the printing press, which is all this, this moving the federal funds rate around mumbo-jumbo really amounts to, the Federal Reserve lowers its federal funds target. That is supposed to be a credible promise to use the printing press, right? If I'm lowering the federal funds rate and the market doesn't like, or there's not enough money in the market, then the rate won't go down. The market rate, the effective federal funds rate won't go down. I'm promising through open market operations to push bank reserves into the system to get that rate down to where I want it as the Federal Reserve. So lowering the federal funds rate sounds like it is a credible promise to use the printing press. But here's the problem. The dot-com recession and its aftermath. The dot-com recession was incredibly mild, yet there was very little recovery from it, despite the fact that Alan Greenspan's Fed had lowered the federal funds rate, not just by a quarter basis point each time, but well, there were some 50s. But either way, by the time we got to November 2002, rates were down getting close toward 1% and even the zero lower bound. Something else was going on here. And that something else was given to us by both Stock and Watson as well as Ben Bernanke himself. Stock and Watson, what they said was, that, okay, they said maybe it's the services economy, maybe it's the Federal Reserve, but really what it is, here's the paper, because most of the reduction, the reduction in volatility in the economy seems to be due to good luck in the form of smaller economic disturbances, we are left with the unsettling conclusion that the quiescence of the past 15 years could well be a hiatus before a return to more turbulent economic times. In other words, they didn't really have an explanation. One of the things that was absolutely conspicuously missing were these deep, devastating monetary problems that had seemed to be regular throughout economic history until we get to this period of the so-called great moderation. Something else was happening, something else that was preventing monetary disasters. Was it the Federal Reserve with its federal funds rate or something they never looked at? Was it an external exogenous monetary system that was expanding regardless of whatever the Federal Reserve did? And if you take Stock and Watson at their word, what they said was, at some point, we could have more turbulent economic times once our quote-unquote good luck runs out, which would just happen to be August 9th, 2007. But before August 9th, 2007, people like Ben Bernanke were warned 
something like that could not only was it possible it was potentially likely and that person was ben bernanke ben bernanke in march of 2006 building upon alan greenspan's conundrum they couldn't figure out why long-term rates were not obeying the Federal Reserve's command. Because if the Federal Reserve is responsible for the great moderation and the Fed was raising rates at that time, shouldn't short rate as well as long rates go up? Well, by all accounts, they thought it should. But long rates were not going up, leading to first flattening and then inversion in the yield curve. So Ben Bernanke spoke in New York City as the newly installed Federal Reserve chairman in a speech which he called Reflections on the Yield Curve and Monetary Policy. And of course, he came up with all of these explanations for why long-term rates, we can just ignore those. He said there was accounting uh, demand from pension funds and insurance companies because of regulations. Foreign reserve managers tend to like to buy lots of U.S. treasuries, had nothing to do with the economy, at least according to him. He later would propose a global savings clause, which was complete nonsense. He also said in 2006, it was because of the great moderation in the Fed, lower term premiums. But Bernanke also said this. He left open the door for another explanation in long-term interest rates. What does this historically unusual behavior of long-term yields imply for the conduct of monetary policy? The answer, it turns out, depends critically on the source of that behavior. However, if that behavior of long-term yields reflects current or prospective economic conditions, the implications for policy may be quite different. Indeed, quite the opposite. The simplest case in point is when lower falling long-term yields reflect investor expectations of future economic weakness. Long-term yields in the middle 2000s, as it turns out, were correct to suspect future economic weakness and financial volatility. But what form did that take? Well, it did take a one-time crash, but it took a one-time crash that was never subprime mortgages, and the, the problems that led up to it were never actually fixed. So longer-term yields that got lower really could have been a fundamental window into our future, which was beyond 2008 and 2009. Looking forward from where we are today, what do we see? The Fed is trying to say, we've got the monetary system under control, we've got the economy into a soft landing, and all of it depends upon credibility that in the marketplace, the Fed doesn't have. Now, it may have some credibility left in the public based on some lingering thoughts and happy thoughts about the great moderation, Volcker, all that stuff, but the marketplace knows better. And so inversion is, in Bernanke's words, when lower falling term yields reflect investor expectations of future economic weakness. The more those yields go down relative to short yields, the more inversion, the more we can infer fears over economic weakness. And in that, over the long run, where we don't fix it, that is the worst case. And if we did have a sharp crash where things really went wrong and it woke everybody up to the issues, that might actually be a good thing. To stop relying on the Fed, to stop looking at QE, to look at them credibly or not credibly promising to use a printing press that they don't actually possess. Those are the things where a crash, if we provoke that sort of backlash, that sort of investigation, therefore solutions 
that might actually be a good thing. But the market right now seems to be betting. Maybe it's a crash, but it's not likely to be a crash that changes the situation. Instead, yields are reverting toward their lower term mean that looks a lot like uh, Japan. Japan, Japan, Japan. I'm Jeff. This is your Dollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, a huge, enormous thank you, Eurodollar University members, Eurodollar University subscribers, Markets Insider Pro subscribers, all of you. Take care until next time.